following is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. Welcome back, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax. Going back to the classic days of wrestling. That's what, that's what we do here on Classic Wrestling Memories, part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcast device of your choice, and, of course, at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. Uh, I do appreciate your feedback that we've gotten in the last two shows, our, our one-on-one shows. Uh, we're going back to kind of more of our regular formula right now, where we have a specific time and place that we're going to discuss tonight. It's more of what a regular episode of Classic Wrestling Memories is like. We are talking Memphis, Tennessee, specifically spring 1977. Now, naturally, to geeks like me, we think 1977, we think Star Wars, but there was a lot of uh, wrestling news that happened in the spring of 1977, and we're here to talk about it. Joining me once again from the asylum in South Kakalaki, my regular co-host of Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I am glad to be talking about the old times of wrestling. You know that I love this podcast, so it's going to be a fun story, I think. So I'm going to get their eyes open a little bit about how crazy it can be when the curtain gets pulled back. Absolutely, and we do have a special guest here to, to talk the Memphis Territories and this uh, the, the Great Memphis Split, as we're calling it. We had him on a couple weeks ago on the A1 proper. He is the play-by-play announcer for Anarchy Pro Wrestling. Mr. Dan the Dragon Wilson. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be back here on the A1 Wrestling Network and excited to talk some Memphis wrestling. It's probably the territory uh, dearest to my heart. I'm certainly the biggest fan, I believe, of all the territories of of Memphis. It it connected with me, but also had a personal connection. Uh, My late great uncle, uh, the legendary Gypsy Joe, was a big star both for Goulas um, and later Jarrett there. And so uh, you've got a lot of firsthand accounting of that territory and like most of the the more famous guys i've gotten to know over the years etc you know all sort of have some sort of memphis connection so i'm very excited to discuss it well you know i, I promise our listeners dan when, when we started this podcast i had a pretty extensive black book and i was going to try to get as many people as i could that i knew so when we started talking about memphis uh i you were one of the first names that popped up in my head i said you know what i need to get dan on here dan has firsthand account both personally and from his uncle, about this territory. So uh, we're glad you come on. You're glad to talk. Uh, if we get a little familiar, listeners, we're sorry. Me and Dan kind of go back a little ways, about, what, 15 years now probably, <laughs> if not longer? Uh, at least. Yeah, at so, least. Yeah. I think we met in 2001. Yeah, something like that. So a little over 15 years. I have known him as long as I've known Susan or some of the other guests. We've Mike Mooneyham, some other guests we've had. But I've known Dan for a little while. So anyway, Seth, why don't you start us off and kind of lay the groundwork here? Let our listeners know uh, what 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 is Memphis? Where are we heading? And when we want to cut you off, we'll just cut you off and and I you know make a hot tag if we need to. So why don't you go ahead and do that for us, Seth? Absolutely. So. Like I said, we're talking Memphis, and I think really just about any wrestling fan that has access to the internet and anybody that read the after mags back in the day like I did uh, has probably heard of Memphis because naturally one of the probably the biggest Memphis star of all time is a WWE Hall of Famer, Jerry the King Lawler. And I'm going to 
uh, gives a little bit of history here before the split. And uh, again, jump in, gentlemen, if if you if I'm if I say something wrong or say something that's less accurate of what uh, the old timers might say, but uh, we'll cut you off if we need to. Don't worry. <laughs> and that right, Dan? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but in the in the 1940s, uh, uh, Nick Goulas and Roy Welch started promoting wrestling uh, in the Memphis area. I believe the proper name was Memphis Wrestling Enterprises, but I doubt any of the fans knew that name. And they they were part of the NWA territory uh, before what we knew as Memphis. However, they also included Nashville, uh, Knoxville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and Lexington, Kentucky. And, the, and like I said, the primary promoters and bookers were Nick Goulas and Roy Welch. And this was a healthy territory for the better part of 30 years until the late 1970s, which is what we're going to talk about. Now... Let me ask. Let me ask Dan here, since you're talking about it. My understanding: Tennessee, at least geographically speaking, at the point we're talking about, up until the split, was one of the largest territories in all the NWA. Is that right, Dan? Oh, that's a fact. I mean, it, Tennessee is one of the, besides Texas, as far as like diameter from one end to the other, especially uh, horizontally. Like yep. Tennessee, you know, from Memphis to Chattanooga, where I live, is a six-hour drive. That's across right. one state. Yeah, I've driven across Tennessee many times, and it, it's, yeah, it's, but I mean, you're going up into Kentucky, you're going later on into Evansville, Indiana, and how far south down did it stretch at that point? I know they were dipping in some into uh, Alabama, too, weren't they? Birmingham was a big town for them at the time, yeah, for sure. They, Hunt, they had, Huntsville, maybe, too, I think, maybe, later on? Yeah, well, Birmingham had a TV, and so they oh, would okay. do spot shows based on that TV around Birmingham. Uh, they had their own unique TV show that they got on the bicycle tapes that I, I believe was filmed in the studio, but they would add localized promos for the at uh, the Alabama market. I got you. I got you. I got you. So it was so that that made them a little different, I think, than some other territories at the time. Where not that they didn't have loops, but it was just so far out. You just you know, like I'll, I'll use Carolina. So obviously, this is what I know so well. It was all of Virginia and the Carolinas. You, you you might have two crews running the north end and the south end of this territory, but you you just had one loop. That was it, you know. And and no one particular TV had their own specific TV like that. They everybody got the same Crockett tape. They just had you know their own local uh, spots in for matches. But you're saying there some of these far out towns like Birmingham even had their own television. It was so big, right? Oh yeah, I mean like Birmingham had their own TV at a time. Louisville had their own TV at a time. Uh- um, I, didn't, didn't Evansville I, at some point too, later on, I think maybe. Yeah. I think they even did on a small station. I believe you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a huge territory at a time when territories, you know, were not always that big. So I'm sorry, Seth, I didn't want to interrupt. I just, I wanted some of the listeners to get a grasp of the size of the territory we're talking about, which, you know, probably is why you had two promoters and, and Goulas and, uh, Welch at the time. But anyways, go ahead with your history lesson, Seth. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, they, because they were probably run multiple shows at once uh just I, mean, I don't know that for a fact but just to give people an idea uh, i mean if you look at a map of tennessee memphis is all the way on the west side of the state and nashville is all the way on the right side of the state so the chances of somebody traveling from memphis to uh uh nashville just for a wrestling show is pretty pretty darn slim <laughs> you know yeah because you memphis and nashville you're only halfway across the state because Nashville's kind of central. Then you got the older half of the state to go all the way all the other far into Knoxville. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Knox- Knoxville might have been what I was thinking of then. But yeah, uh, yeah. but anyway, they had they had a Monday night show at the Mid-South Coliseum. 
and Jerry Jarrett did the, the booking and promoting for several years. Uh, I think I was want to say it was about seven or eight years. Uh, so basically throughout most of the 70s. Right, I mean, Jerry to come in as a worker and worked his all the way up to being a main event guy. When was that, Dan? Uh, early, mid-60s, probably? It, it, I believe it would have been mid, mid to late 60s through the late 70s was really the rise of Jared as a babyface, if I'm not mistaken. And what a babyface he was. Oh, um, he drew, maybe he one drew. of the most popular ones they ever had in Memphis. So, you know, a lot of people tend to forget that when uh, Jerry Jarrett's contributions are remembered as this legendary wrestling promoter and booker and creative mind and these other things is that he was a hell of a worker as well. Um, and a lot of people tend to overlook that, but he was a very popular babyface. Let's talk about his mother. I mean, that's really where he all, like all of his wrestling influence and, and introduction to the business came from. His mother, Christine, was a spot show promoter. She worked in the ghoulist office. She actually went out and pr- promoted her own towns. And um, she, uh, maybe prior to like Linda McMahon, probably the longest tenured and one of the most powerful women in the business. Probably, yeah. Uh, I know Corny, Jim Cornette, kind of pretty much personally gives her thanks and credit for getting him started in the business. You know, I mean, there's the stories of him drawing his pictures and them catching the eye of Lance Russell, who we'll discuss more at length in a little bit, and Lawler. But, I mean, she ran the towns on that end of the, of, of the territory where he was from in Louisville and Lexington, and she's kind of the one that let him get into the shows and start selling popcorn and stuff. Isn't that the way you understand it, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, Christine, Jared, you're right, as far as being in a day and age where we're really putting emphasis in wrestling on the empowerment of women, Christine Jarrett kind of was, she was a groundbreaker. She really was. Huge pioneer, and honestly, in, in WWE's efforts to recognize women's empowerment and contributions to the business, if they don't recognize her at some level, that's a big miss. Sure is. I mean, the only other person I can think of, a powerful woman, between Linda and Christine, would, would probably be Rock's grandmother, uh, Atta. Because she ran Hawaii there for a while, and that's it, you know? I mean, and think of, and fans, I want you to think about what we're, the time period we're talking about. The 1960s, we're before the women's rights movement, we're in the middle of the civil rights movement, and we're in, a, we're in a business that is a good old boy business dominated by a bunch of white alpha male males. And here comes this woman in, and she's on par with them. I, you know, I mean, what do you think about that, Seth? I mean, you're... You're a little younger than, than than me. I mean, put that into perspective for me from a younger person standpoint. I mean, it is pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, now, granted, uh, I don't I don't think Dan knows this train. I, know, I think you you know it, and anybody listening to this who posts on A one knows it. I'm probably one of the bigger Jeff Jarrett fans you're going to find. Now, I don't think he's no <laughs> you know, no not you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying build the promotion around him or anything like that. But you know, I've I've always just been a fan of his work, and and he has said that that uh, his grandmother. Basically, did everything except wrestle, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but when you think about it, getting back to putting things into perspective, she was not a wrestler in the, in the wrestling business. She was a promoter. She right. hired and fired guys. Yep. You know, that, that that's probably the best way to put it into, into perspective. And this this business that was filled with these uh, big athletic honking country boys, she was the she was the one that was hiring and firing them. Yeah, I mean, think about the other promoters that were her contemporaries at the time in the NWA. You had Vince Senior, Vern, Big Jim Crockett, uh, Fritz was starting to run. Uh, you had the LaBelles were, were starting to run um, L.A. You had Leroy McGurk in, in Oklahoma. 
You had Stu Hart in Calgary. You had Don Owen in Portland. You're getting an idea now of the kind of, you know, <laughs> right. it, it, it was kind of a boys club and they all, you know, it just was what it was. But on top of, you know, Jarrett, we're talking about Jarrett being a star leading into this before he got the book. Um, the other big star, I don't think you can mention Memphis wrestling. If you do and you don't mention this name, you, you don't know your history, would be Jackie Fargo, the fabulous mm-hmm. one, Jackie Fargo. Um, when did Jackie's run start, Dan? I'm not quite sure. I'm not as up on Jackie as I probably should be. But you would know more about oh, that being God. a Tennessee bond. Oh, yeah. Jackie is uh, – I, I couldn't tell you when his run started. Um, I, I, I think I don't he back started far, in the late but, 50s. Uh, and I don't think historical records do either. But uh, <laughs> in my opinion, Jackie Fargo is one of the greatest all-time performers in our sport ever. Oh, yeah. um, and I don't think he gets near the credit he deserves for being, I mean, he's one of the biggest draws wrestling ever had, first of all. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and also just um, like his promos and the way he would speak. That's the thing about regional wrestling that unfortunately is lost oh, yes. on the, the corporate era is a guy like Jackie Fargo. You know, in California, they might not have known what the blue hell Jackie Fargo was talking about. But in Tennessee, he spoke to those people, Pally, um, and just, I, I mean, was was the biggest draw in Memphis history up until this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, of course, the, the fabulous ones, which in the early 80s would have been Steve Kern and Stan Lane, who many credit with being the first of the pretty boy, you know, rock and roll type uh, babyface tag team because they predated the rock and rolls and the rockers and all those other guys. They got over essentially because Jackie Fargo came in and gave him his thumb of approval and even gave him his name. He he strutted long before Ric Flair strutted, and he was mm-hmm. a contemporary of Buddy Rogers. So I don't know. I guess you can flip a coin to tell me who had the who had the strut first, Buddy Rogers or Jackie Fargo? Probably <laughs> about the same time, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Probably. Was, hey, you know you 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 can't wear the suits and the high hats, Pally. Jimmy Hart, <laughs> you, you're no good. Stink, you stink. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad impression. But but at this time, I mean, we talked about Jackie Fargo. We talked about Jerry Jarrett as as a draw. Uh, Tennessee was essentially, though, a, a pretty much a tag team territory at the time. I, what I think of Tennessee in that era, and my what I what little I've seen and know about it, I think about Alan Don Green and the Infernos and 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 the and the and the Fargos. You know, Jackie and his brother Roughhouse, and and uh, which was a, you know an attraction thing. But you know, I digress. But it was more of a tag team territory. Am I am I correct in recalling yeah, well, that? Right it was, yeah, you are. It, it was Jackie and Don, and they really were the tag team that the territory was built on. They went up and became successes in New York. Um, you know, these country bumpkins from Tennessee, uh, and then of course came back as a huge success. And Roughhouse is actually he was Sunny, a special right? attraction in that he didn't. Yes, yeah, Sonny Fargo. He didn't live there in Memphis. He actually lived in the Carolinas and was a referee for the Crockett. Right, right. I say, but say for us here in the Carolinas, it was a referee. Yeah, that's what we do a mess. Exactly. But when the Fargos would get in trouble or a heel stable would outnumber them and beat them down, and they'd have to call in some help, they'd go bust their crazy brother out of the lunatic asylum. And that was Roughhouse, Sonny, the referee from Mid Atlantic. So, you know, he's skinny dude. He looks like a referee. Buggy whip arms. Uh, but he would come in like biting the referee on the ass and chasing the heels and pulling their pants down and, uh, you know, like taking the camera away from the cameraman and just doing all this. And people loved him. And this 150 pounds soaking wet dude drew some of the biggest houses in the history of the Mid-South Coliseum. 
So he essentially did the crazy train gimmick long before I even was born. Is what you're saying? <laughs> He's yeah, kind of, yeah. He kind of did my gimmick, I, and that's funny because I don't I don't ever remember seeing him. I've always credited more like uh, I stole stuff from Boogie Woogie Man, and I stole stuff from a little bit from Dick Slater, a little bit from Terry Funk. I don't think uh, a little bit from from Junkyard Dog. I I don't think I've ever said I stole from uh, Roughhouse Fargo, but when I heard about him and got to see some, I'm going, wow, I guess I did steal from him. <laughs> I guess they say, you know, uh, imitation is a serious form of flattery. So, hey, I mean, that is what it is, I guess. But, uh, yeah, Yeah, I I I think he's the archetype for that type of gimmick. You know, I I think he was probably one of the first. I mean, there's probably somebody before him, but, you know, records only go back so far. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, it was he was a special attraction. This was not a regular thing. They would do it as an angle. And that was that was always the storyline, wasn't it? They would they would go and break him out of the out of the loony bin to come even the odds, so to speak. And that how the, the angle always went down. It was, and it was generally on the holidays. So like when he would be in town visiting their family. So they like, Oh, the big Christmas show. Oh, rough house right. is getting busted out of the nut house tonight. Well, you know, right. of course he is because he's in town visiting the family for Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, Chris, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Turkey dinner this afternoon. Of course. Yeah. You see, but there's, there's a recurring theme that we talked about on our first episode with Mike Mooneyham when we talked about the first Starcade. Here in the Southern Territories, holidays were a big deal. That's where your big houses were. That's where your big shows were. And, and so Tennessee was no different then, correct? No, it wasn't. And believe it or not, um, not a lot of any promotions do it now because of the risk, I guess, involved and trying to not upset the apple cart with the talent who wants to be home with their families anymore. But um, I've done a few Christmas night shows for various groups over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Still draws every time. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I one of, second or third year in the business. I I worked one here in in Greenville, so I literally didn't have to. I didn't have to leave town. I mean, this was a promotion that on average drew 150 fans. They drew 300 people on Christmas Day. I can't speak for the wrestling part of it, obviously, because I'm not into the business. But I've worked at video arcades. I've worked at movie theaters. I've worked at a lot of entertainment type uh, businesses, and mm-hmm. you know, holidays are definitely big days I mean, when when you work in a field like that, you are essentially... Now, they will try to work with you as far as what hours are going to be best for you, but when I was working uh, in, in the... Uh, when I was working at the movie theater, we were always busy Christmas night, you know? We, and, and, we, and we were busy later Thanksgiving because everybody goes and eats their turkey, and then they decide, hey, let's just go out and see movies since all, all the families in town. So all those people... Then you that, get cabin fever after a while being cooped up with your family, you know? <laughs> yeah, and if you're a promoter... And you know this, uh, you know, people get cabin fever, like you said, Dan. Why not load the card, get the special attraction, and really make it worth their while, get a little bang for their buck in their holiday off good. I mean, I think that was the mentality. At least that was always how I perceived it. But, you know, yeah, anyway. I, but but so I, we, we kind of cut you off in the history there. We were just trying to lay a little bit of groundwork. So we were talking Jackie Fargo. We're talking Jerry Jarrett's top guy leading into this. You got uh, – how could we not mention Sputnik Monroe? Probably one of the most underrated and best heels of all time, too. Was another major draw leading into this time. Are you familiar with it, Seth? Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with, with Sputnik. What about you, Seth? I, I've heard the name. I wouldn't recognize it, but I was, but I was also uh, <laughs> going to bring up uh, Yamamoto, I think. Uh, oh, he, he's, he, oh I, I, he was on next on my list, too. Don't You're jumping the gun here, brother. <laughs> Let the veterans call it in the ring. You, you, you kind of... <laughs> Slow down. Just to, we'll carry you, kid. Don't worry. <laughs> what were you gonna say about Sputnik, man? I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just. I mean, you can't understate 
or you can't overstate the importance of Sputnik Monroe in relation to Memphis. Um, not necessarily the biggest draw they ever had, but a huge draw during his day is feud with Billy Wicks in Memphis. Still mm-hmm. talked about in 2017 by the people that are alive that saw it. Uh, but where Sputnik will really be remembered is more than even what he ever did in the ring, and that was that he actually desegregated Memphis wrestling. He was a heel, but the African-American fans loved him. Um, He once got arrested for consorting with coloreds, quote-unquote, according to the newspaper, uh, because he was in the bar drinking with the black folks. And um, he made it so that they desegregated the seating at the Mid-South Coliseum to where the the blacks and whites could sit together. I mean, that was all Sputnik Monroe. Like, he is so important to wrestling history and I dare say civil rights history to a degree. Yeah, if, if you, yeah, yeah. He's, he's really kind of a when when the kids go to classes nowadays, of course they hear about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and they should. They're all very important in this, you know, in the desegregation of the South. But Spunk Monroe's not up there, and you're right. I think he should be. I, I, fascinating character at a time when we just talked about earlier. Everybody uh, kayfabed back then. I mean, it was. I brought it up before. That's how you drew money back then was the ability to get the fans to believe you were real, you know, 24 seven. And Sputnik was definitely one of those guys. And, and, and he's been on record as saying, you know, you can have the whites because the blacks love me. And because of that, I think Sputnik was one of the first quote unquote, cool heels out there long before the four horsemen, long before the NWO, because as he brought it up, a lot of these black ladies that were fans of his, they worked in the homes of the middle and upper class white folks in Memphis. Well, they talked to their teenage boys, and then the boys became fascinated with, with, with Sputnik, and they'd go to wrestling too. So it's kind of a fascinating way it kind of broke down during that time in Memphis. Have you heard any of those stories before, Dan? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, for, for years, you know, you and as much history as you can dig up on Sputnik, I, I would recommend it. Uh, the Memphis Heat documentary, has yep. a lot of really good stuff about the Sputnik stuff. Um, there's there's a couple of great books out there. I'm blanking on the names, but um, it, there's there's lots of stuff about Sputnik out there. Go do your research, folks. You'll be amazed to see what this guy did as a wrestler uh, that was so much greater than our business. Oh, and and, and, and he looked the part. I mean, he was barrel chested. He was a I won't say he was good looking, but he kind of had a rugged outlaw kind of look to him had his big huge skunk spot streak in his hair so he was very unique looking even by today's standards and he just looked like a tough guy who could could win a fight uh you know me and seth talk about that all the time one of the problems i think with the business nowadays is none of the guys that are on top and the big promotions look like could win a fight so that kind of kind of defeats the purpose doesn't it sputnik was not and all these guys we're talking about I mean, if you've seen Jerry Jarrett recently, he looks like what he is now. He looks like uh, an older, elderly man. In his heyday, he was big-chested, good-looking, blonde guy. I mean, he was—you had to look the part back in those days. You know, it just—it was what it was. Uh, I mean, we're kind of getting off topic, but I'm kind of interested while we got you on here, Dan. Even though wrestling is not a completely cosmetic business, how important is that part to the business, in your opinion? It's crucial. I I mean, you know, because if you don't deliver. In that arena, if you don't deliver in the physically imposing, like you're fighting an uphill battle immediately mm-hmm. because the second you walk out of the curtain, you have to work that much harder to get them to believe in what you're doing. 
But if you yeah. are physically imposing, if you do look the part, then uh, you actually don't have to work as hard. And a lot of guys don't necessarily understand that anymore, but that's another rant for another time. And I'm not going to come over here and crap on the business <laughs> today because, you know, I'm still employed in it. And um, also... <laughs> I love it. I still love it or I wouldn't be here. Um, I respect and understand that things have changed. Some things not for the better, in my opinion, but it is what it is. Right. I'm not going to try to fight the tidal wave. <laughs> I'm just going to try to make what I know work within it, you know? And yeah. uh, so, but, but I agree wholeheartedly. The look uh, is, I mean, it's the first thing you see when somebody walks out the curtain. So like What's I said, you? if you, you don't sell them with the look, then you're fighting an uphill battle right off the bat. What's the old cliche? You never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? That's right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not to put myself over, but does crazy train work like I worked if I didn't have the hair that was all messed up and the shoes that were taped up and I wasn't the most, I wasn't a small guy. I wasn't the most physically imposing guy in the world. None of my shtick works without that. I don't think. Do you, you see me perform? No, no, see, not, that, at that's, not, like, that's, not at all. That's my point. I mean, it's, it, and it's, I, I think people misunderstand when I say the look, I don't want everybody to look like Hulk Hogan in 1986. I don't want everybody to look like Lex Luger in 1990. We got enough of those, you know, but you do have to look unique. You have to look the part. And, and, and even I brought up punky Ricky Morton a lot. Ricky obviously was never the biggest guy in the fight, but Ricky looked like he could win a fight. If that makes any sense. He had that fire about it. And it wasn't know? necessarily based on his size. Just what you said, no. the fire, it was based on the fire. Because he was a small, skinny dude, but he would get in there and scrap, and he would yeah. fight, and he and had the fire, and he never died, and the people bought it. I think you can put uh, Jerry the King Lawler in that category, too. I mean, he didn't sure. look like the athlete of the day, but he had a vibe to him where I think the crowd just knew that King may not be as big or bad as these monsters that kept being brought in to fight him, but King would find a way to outsmart the, outsmart the monster and get his title back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, so we've, we've discussed a little bit of the background now in Memphis, Seth, before we cut you off. We're up to the early 70s now. Jarrett's kind of done with his run as, as an in-ring competitor. About what time, according to your research, do you take over the book and start booking for Nick Goulas? Uh, I would have it in the early 70s. Now, keep, now keep in mind, Jerry's only about 30 years old here. You know, right. So he, so he retired from full-time in-ring competition at a, at a very young age. And right. I think he had said on one of his uh, guest booker things for kayfabe commentaries uh, that he kind of regretted that because it made the wrestling part of it harder because there was so much time in between his matches that his body would start kind of adjusting to normality and then he's got to take bumps again. But <laughs> In that proverbial ring rust, you got to knock off. Right. Uh, and, and my understanding, of, about that time, we're starting to see the aforementioned Jerry Lawler come in and start to become a, a star. He gets Jackie Fargo's uh, uh, seal of approval. Uh, and Jarrett's kind of starting to move away from the more of the tag team and working more towards a, a singles-centric promotion. Is that what your research is telling you and how you recall, Dan? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the rise of Lawler. And you bring up Lawler, it's the perfect timing in the episode because he is so crucial in all of this that's about to transpire. Yeah, uh, First, as a brass young heel uh, working outlaw promotions, then he gets noticed by uh, buddying up with Jackie Fargo and drawing some pictures for him, doing some odd jobs for him. Uh, he works at a radio station, so he helps 
promote the shows, just like all of us who wanted to be in the wrestling business as hangers on. We just did whatever we could until yep. someone said, fine, come on, you can have a job. Oh, God, but, I'll smart you up, so, kid. Just leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's what happened with Lawler. So he comes in as this brash heel, and he's red hot. And we, the, the feud that you talk about with um, Fargo giving him the seal of approval, it's not like Fargo went out in the ring and said, this is your next guy right here, Jerry Lawler. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, Fargo was the top babyface, as we talked about previously, for years. The biggest draw up till this point in the history of Memphis wrestling. And so, as the heel, Lawler challenges Fargo for his crown, uh, for the right to be called the King of Memphis. And they have this huge feud that breaks, shatters box office records. And Jerry Lawler, after it's all said and done and the dust clears, is a made man and the top draw for years to come. But at least right now, his rise is very much one of the key instigating factors in the split. Exactly. And, and, I'm, and, and this whole angle you just described in short form, this is all booked by Jerry Jarrett, correct? Yes. This, this is his brainchild. This is his way of getting the young kid over... Uh, phasing Jackie Fargo out a little bit, but I mean, Jackie's realizing that, you know, he's, you've only got, as they always say, your, your bump card only has so many bumps on it. And Jackie's beginning to realize that his bump card's getting a little full. And um, of course, we're also talking about time. I think I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. We're talking at a time in the, in the seventies and even into the eighties, because the style was different in ring. It was not unusual to see a competitor wrestle well into his mid fifties before he retired. Uh, not where today we're, you know, unfortunately, guys like Edge and Daniel Bryan have to retire before they're 40 because of the style that they have nowadays. This was a different time period. Um, mm. But anyway, uh, I yeah. digress. Uh, were you going to say something, Seth? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I was just going to agree with you. You know, a- absolutely. I mean, you see, got you saw guys like um, I'm blanking on his you know, John Tolos. You know, wrestling mm. in the early Starcades, and he was in his 50s and wrestling some pretty darn good matches. I mean, hell, I mean, I. Uh, Luthez, I think, had his last official match when he was 70 years old, mm-hmm. doing the honors for, for Masahiro Chono in Japan, one of his protégés. Think about that. Then again, Luthez was a freak of nature. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I digress there as well. I don't think we any of us need to do any more to put Luthez over for what <laughs> Luthez was. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so we're just like, we're laying the groundwork now. And I think another key factor that we have to mention now, that Lawler's kind of risen and he's the top star, about the same time, and I'm going to let you take over here, Seth, Nick Goulas, who is still officially the promoter, even though Jarrett's the booker, and he's a former wrestler himself, his son, George, is now old enough to become a wrestler, and he decides he wants his son to be a wrestler. So what happens, mm-hmm. Seth? Well, uh, Jerry doesn't like this because we, t- we talked about the look a-, a few minutes ago about you know looking like you could win a fight. Now, I admittedly have not seen any pictures or any footage but the, my crash course research uh, showed that George Goulas did not match any of those uh, traits that we were talking about. He doesn't pass the eye test. And Jerry Jarrett is smart enough to see this. Uh, King is smart enough to see this. Most of the names, with the exception of a few, uh, were probably smart enough to see this. And that's really where the rift happens and we st- where we start talking about the... Uh, the imminent split, so to speak. How'd I do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're familiar with Greg Gagne and the difference mm-hmm. of his look to his father's, correct? Right, right. I I, I remember. Well, uh, George passes the eye test even less than Greg Gagne did. 
Right. And on top of that, Greg Manetta had a great look. Greg was a good athlete and could work. I was know? about to say, he, he, was, the, he was athletic. You, know, he, you, you see him yeah, jump off the, the top rope. Yeah, and he had, the benef- he had the benefit of having a, a really good partner, you know. And 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 Brian Blair, but um, or sorry, it was yeah, it was Brian Blair. Is it, uh, um, no, I think it was I think it was Brunzel. <laughs> yeah, Jim Brunzel. George, on the other hand, um, they tried putting him with just about everybody in the territory to help him get over, and it wasn't working. Am I correct in that, Dan? Oh God, uh, Jerry Jarrett, Tojo. I mean, all of those teamed with George at Barry. I mean, George, George and Tojo were an ongoing oh, yeah. team for a long time. They, I mean, it's important when you talk Jackie about, Fargo, didn't they? Oh, they did. Yeah, they did. They they did everything possible to try to get George over, and it just wasn't working. Um, you talked about how the territory was sort of split because of the size of Tennessee, uh, where you had Lexington, uh, Louisville, Evansville, Memphis. Then you sort of had Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham on the other side. Mm-hmm. So Jarrett well, was mainly in charge. Before you mm-hmm. go with that, Dan, let me ask, because you brought, just brought that up. At what point, I know it happens at some point, at what point do the Welches kind of, I mean, they're still they're still essentially partners with Goulas, but at what point do they kind of start running Knoxville and Eastern Tennessee as its own little territory separate from Memphis? Because that kind of does happen around this time, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, Knoxville's a, it's kind of its own animal, really worthy of its own discussion, because you had a lot of different people that ran Knoxville over time. Memphis did at times, um, and sometimes they just had their own little territory, like with, you know, your Ron Wrights and Whitey Caldwell. Whitey Caldwell. These guys weren't associated with any of the other territory. They're just kind of their own island. Uh, But at times, they were associated with Memphis. Knoxville... This is kind of a mixed bag, so it's really hard to get into the the details there because there's yeah, so much I, to talk about. Yeah, I know. Like there at the end, I mean, even Blackjack Mulligan and Flair bought it and tried to run it for a little while. But I, we'll go over the Knoxville territory in long form in another episode. I just thought it would be since you brought up the size of Tennessee right there, I just would thought we'd bring that up right now. But I'm sorry for cutting you off. Go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry what you're saying. Oh no, you're good. And, and I mean, Knoxville's right in the middle of all of that. But really, the territory was split into two sides. You had the eastern side of Tennessee right. and Alabama, and western Tennessee and north. And so Jarrett handled the western side, while Goulas mainly promoted the eastern side, all under the same company. So uh, let me get this So you got. Let me make sure I got this straight. So you're talking Jarrett's got east. So he's got Memphis, Evansville, Louisville, Lexington. Those are his big towns. And Goulas has got essentially Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham. Those are his big towns. Correct. That's correct. Yes. All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm trying to make sure the listeners no, you're are good. following us here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and please feel free to jump in anytime. <laughs> Uh, but it, so as far as that goes, so, so you had really two different promotions unofficially uh, operating under the same banner because Jarrett, starting with the rise of Lawler in particular, was pushing his own talent and he was hedging his bets on Lawler. Goulas did not push Lawler as hard because he put George in that spot. Right. And so George, essentially the push of George being a Chattanooga resident, I can speak to this especially from talking to the old-time wrestling fans that live there. The uh-huh. push of George Goulas killed Chattanooga. It killed that town dead, and it's never recovered. I mean, it, like, wow. we're now doing the Scenic City Invitational Tournaments that are, and it's only, like, a few times a year, and we do big crowds. Um, but, you know, and that's a lot of effort and bringing in, like, top indie talent from all over the country and, you know, really mm-hmm. making it, like, this destination event where fans fly in from all over the country to come to. Um right. Until then, Chattanooga has been a dead territory, and it, it all falls really on George and the overpush of him. And he was—he was gangly. 
uh, buggy whipped arms, had marble mouth. Um, I mean, like people really, no, it's terrible. I mean, people really dogged on his ring work and like his fundamentals. I mean, if you look at a lot of the guys' fundamentals now on the Indies in particular, he could still smoke them. But for <laughs> a guy, for his level of push versus his ability, like it was one of the first cases on a major level like that where the fans could really see through it. And it was so you're, really, you're like I said, saying he's Roman Reigns 40 years before Roman Reigns is even thought of. And Roman's got the look. Uh, I mean, Roman Reigns looks like, a, I mean, I don't think, you know, to take a sidebar here, I don't think Roman Reigns issues are any of his fault. Nope. I think that kid is money. And, you know, they took a kid who was guaranteed money. And I'm not saying they pissed it away because he still moves good merchandise numbers. But, um, you know, he's a good worker. Like, they, that's yeah. just all on how he was presented. The, you, you turned your own audience on the guy. Like, that's your fault. Right, but the concept of, of the fans realizing this isn't the guy we want, it's it's the same thing, but for all different yes, reasons. You're I think exactly right, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think that um, before this, you know, to put it in, into into you know perspective, all the people we just mentioned, the Spunt Nick McRose and the Jackie Fargos and 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 the Green Brothers and the Infernos and all these guys, these guys were all drawn monster houses in Chattanooga, and then George Goulas comes along. Is that what you're saying? That's yeah, pretty much. I mean, it wasn't as instant as that, but uh, you know, there were there were some times they tried to protect George. They put him in a big babyface tag team with Bobby Eaton as the Jet Set, and uh, this was you know post split. Uh, George was they still hung their banner on George and even brought in uh, the team. You put him in Bobby Eaton, arguably pound for pound the greatest worker in ring of all time, and he still can't get over. What is that selling you, right? As his babyface partner with yeah. the heels that they were working with being Gypsy Joe and Tojo, who had drawn huge money on mm. the Western side about a decade before as the no pain train. Um, and they did it again here on the, the Chattanooga side, but or on the, the Chattanooga, Nashville, Birmingham side, should I say, uh, working with Bobby and George Goulas. And that program probably of that era was one of the best drawing programs they did and probably the best drawing thing George ever did. Uh, and even still, it wasn't enough to save him. You had three all-time greats surrounding him in this program, and he still <laughs> and he couldn't get over. <laughs> and then this would be a good yeah. time as any to ask since you brought since you brought it up. Now remember, this is a family-friendly show. What did your uncle Joe say about George and what it was like working with him? <laughs> well, I can't repeat uh, the exact words on this program being a PG broadcast, but um, he he did not care for it. He <laughs> he espoused his frustrations with working with George Goulas. The only thing I know of firsthand along those lines was uh, Bill Dundee telling me one time in the locker room, uh, once again, cannot be repeated for mixed company, the woes of being quote-unquote saddled with George Goulas in an attempt to try to get him over. And I'll just leave it at that. I think you kind of get the idea of what Bill had to say about that too. So anyway, <laughs> sounds like a consensus yeah. basically, <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so we've got the split, we've got the, the split now in mindsets between Jarrett and Goulas. Um, what else do you, do, do, does your research tell you, Seth, once this is happening, what else starts going, going, or did you, you might not know this, this might be where me and Dan really need to take over. Did, did your research tell you anything about, uh, money and some of the money woes that were going on not drawn just cash in general are you familiar with what i'm talking about seth uh not entirely but i know that most of the major names uh sided with with jared i mean i hear right. yeah here's the list of the people that sided with 
Jared at the end. Jerry Lawler, Rocky Johnson, Barb Armstrong, Gorgeous George Jr., Phil Hickerson, Dennis Condry, Johnny Walker, Robert and Don Fuller, Tommy Rich, David Schultz, Dutch Mantell, Bill Dundee, Carl and Kurt von Steiger, or Steiger. Steiger. Uh, yeah, Ricky and Robert Gibson, not Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton hadn't come on yet, but uh, Tommy Gilbert, Buddy Diamond, and Porkchop Cash. That's a, hall, that's a Hall of Fame list right there. Right. And that's, uh, that's the side side with Jarrett. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm mentioning, and Dan probably can speak to this a little bit too, as good old JR Jim Ross says, when there's ever problems in the wrestling business, and I can speak to this and Dan can as well, I'm sure from his personal experiences, it's usually one of two things, the two C's, cash or creative. Well, we're already getting a schism because we've, we've discussed a little bit the creative side with George Goulas. The other side would be cash. That was also at play, too. Uh, Jarrett thought that he had bought 10% of the promotion from Nick Goulas, which for our listeners to understand, back in the territory days, it was not unusual for a top guy to buy a small percentage of the promotion, maybe get his own town or two to promote for the, for the overall promotion, and, and, and he could kind of homestead. He could stay there. That's why Ole Anderson never left the Carolinas and Georgia. He bought, in, he bought into the Georgia territory from Jim Barnett. It's why Gorilla Monsoon never left the Northeast. He bought into the, the Northeast territory from Vince's father, Vince Sr. So this was unheard of. Well, when this creative schism happens, Jarrett's kind of like, well, I'll just go elsewhere. I don't need you, Goulas. And I have the right to because I've got 10% of the business. Well, he comes to find out that Nick had pulled a fast one on him, and he actually didn't own what he thought he owned. Do you have any more details on that side, Dan? Are you familiar with that side of the story? Not with all of the inner workings, but I know basically what happened out of it in that um, Jared said, all right, I don't have what I thought I had. Well, screw you. I'm just going to go promote the towns on my own. <laughs> and so Jared took over his half of the state. And, um, I, you know, I think Goulas might have still tried to run opposition here and there, but he was he was defeated pretty badly. So basically, you know, just to summarize, you have the rise of Waller on the western side versus the rise of George Goulas on the eastern side. And then uh, part of it comes to where uh, uh, Nick Goulas wants Jerry Jarrett to start booking George on the western end. And uh, he wants to know why he's not featured over there. Or if he is booked, why is he in the opening match? Why is he not working main events? Why is he not being pushed? Why is he not being featured? And they finally had to come out and tell him, well, Nick, because George sucks. <laughs> and so Nick didn't take kindly to that. And then you add the previous financial kerfuffle that you just mentioned. And so it was a recipe for Splitsville. So Jarrett uh, took his ball and went to the western side. Goulas ran the eastern side. And um, I wouldn't call it a war necessarily, but there were loyalties. And, you know, the guys did go back and forth, but at least initially, talked about all the guys that went over to Memphis. Um, and I talked earlier who uh, Goulas had, you know, Bobby Eaton and um, Gypsy Joe and Tojo. And yeah, so, you know, a lot of the, the more old and he had Jackie Fargo, of course. A lot of the more old-timers that had that loyalty to Goulas, and uh, Joe all spoke very highly of Goulas. You know, he was very... I, I remember Michael Hayes on a, a WWE thing once called Joe a, a stooge for Goulas. I mean, he was... He, he loved Nick and uh, thought a lot of him. He didn't think a lot of George. Yeah, you know, and I think that's the thing. I think that we were just talking earlier about this you know, alpha male-dominated business. The guys you're mentioning, they're the old-school guard for that time period. They're the guys, they respect Goulas' time as, as an in-ring 
competitor. They respect him as an old school promoter. He's goes back to the very, very early foundation days of the NWA. That's what they want. It's the younger guys with the exception of Bobby Eaton. They're all the ones that are going with, with, with Jarrett and Lawler because they saw Jarrett as, as either their contemporary or just a little bit older. He was for that time, a little bit more progressive. Would you agree with that? Uh, a, a statement there. It kind yeah, of, I mean, Jared had the vision, right? Right. It, it, it's, it, I don't think it, it's dissimilar from like how guys could see when Vince did what he did in the eighties. Same thing. It was a vision. Like you said, you know, the, where he was going. I mean, anytime you do something like that, it's a risk, but you have to be cognizant of that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in the professional wrestling business, you kind of have to be a couple steps ahead to get right. any real success. Because if you jump on a gravy train, uh, in the middle or towards the end, then, you know, you're, you're just cashing in on something someone else has already right. created. But if you can be at the forefront of that next step, and that's where you're going to make the big money. Jarrett being the visionary that he was saw that and, um, started a huge run of business all on his own. One of the key things that separated him in the split was the TV Lance yep. Russell yep. long time voice of the local news, uh, that warm, friendly, fatherly figure that's a host that you trust to come into your home and he's got credibility and you believe everything he says. And getting Lance Russell was as much of a part of the success of Jarrett's end of it as Lawler or anything else he did. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, my understanding when you're talking time frame, and I think this is amazing and some of the fans need to understand this, up to that point, as you talked about, each individual market, because Tennessee was so big, had their own television. Memphis, of course, was the biggest city, the biggest metropolitan area in the whole territory. Thus, the reason Nick Goulas wanted to know why his son wasn't being used on that end, because, you know, it's the big end. It's, the big, it, it's their Madison Square Garden, so to speak. And um, up until, you know, forever, the Memphis television had been on Channel 13 in Memphis. And Lance Russell just happened to be the program director at Channel 13. And in that package also came along the the lesser known, but I think just equally as legendary, Dave Brown, who was the special interest or newscaster on Channel 13 as well. So you've got these two faces with voices at the local market. They know, they trust. They're Walter Cronkite-esque for the Memphis fans. Is that a fair assessment, you think? Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I mean, Walter Cronkite is a great comparison um, to me, like Lance Russell is the quintessential pro wrestling announcer. There's yep. never really yep. been another guy quite like him nope. with his delivery. Um, the way he would get excited about things was just, you know, he was kind of slow in his pace. Like mm-hmm. he, like me, you know, I, I'm calling action. If the action's getting fast, I'm getting fast and I'm getting excited. And I'm trying to match the level that the competitors are bringing in the ring. Lance wouldn't always do that. And some would say, well, you know, how does that help? But he just had a magic aura about him, the way he delivered everything. You believed him. He had credibility. But also, as the narrator, he could get you excited even in his uh, sort of laid-back style. You know, you would still get fired up listening to Lance Mm -hmm. Russell call this stuff. Well, I think it's, it's, it, it plays into what you talked about earlier with Jackie Fargo's promo style. When you're dealing with the territories, you're dealing with a very regionalized concept. Lance, besides being the guy that, that they knew from being the program director at the television station, the fans there in Memphis, he talked the way they talked. He looked the way they looked. 
So he wasn't something foreign to them. So there was a, a trust level just, I guess, on a subconscious level almost. And Dave Brown was the same way. We had the same thing here in the Carolinas with Bob Cottle. They had the same thing in Florida with Gordon Soley. To a certain level, they had it in Dallas with Bill Mercer. These early announcers are so important to the to the strength of a lot of these territories that you know the, the, the announcers and you know this being an announcer yourself, Dan. They get bashed so hard nowadays, you know, that they're just talking heads, uh, and I think that's sad because I know uh, if you're doing televised wrestling, and I know because I've done it, a good or great announcer can make a so-so match good and a good match great, at least to the to the people watching on TV. You agree with that? I agree a hundred percent. I think, you know, so much of what you're talking about is, and, and I feel bad for the announcers in the major leagues to a degree because they do just get constantly crapped on, uh, you know, and they're so overanalyzed, but none of them have that. Uh, what's the word? A, a liaison. They're not a, the voice of the people. They don't make you feel like they're welcoming you to this broadcast and guiding you on an adventure right. like these old announcers did. It's just the situation of they're, they're just, you know, screaming about whatever Vince is screaming at them in the headset to talk about. Right. Right. And so that's what they're, they're talking about. So a lot of it's not their fault because it's just the way the product is now. But, um, like I've always tried to do that as well as an announcer. And I don't know if I, I did it successfully, but you know, you always want to be that guy that comes into their home, uh, that, is their narrator, their guide. You're taking them on a journey. So you have mm -hmm. to have a warmth about you. You have to have something that's relatable. And I right. just don't feel like a, a lot of the modern announcers are just like Ken dolls. Like in Corey Graves, um, like personally, and I hate to say this cause it's probably going to come off as sour grapes. I think he's a little overrated, but I think he's very good. Um, yeah. I, and I think, you know, at least he does something very different than what the other announcers are doing. And, and right. to that effect, I think, you know, he's, he's got something going on there and he's probably got more of the vibe I'm talking about than, uh, than most of the other guys today. Right. I, I totally agree with you there. But so I want, I want listeners to think about that. It's so hard to, to a concept to, to, I think for modern fans to understand that you could have an announcer you trusted like this. And could you imagine the program director at a network affiliate and in a major market like Memphis, or at least a mid-sized American market like Memphis, is also the wrestling announcer and the liaison between the wrestling promotion office and the TV station. That's that's unfathomable in today's today's thoughts. You know, it's just that's crazy when you think about it. I mean, Michael Cole's a lot of things. I do not see Michael Cole as being the you know the ABC affiliate program director in I don't know Omaha or or Tulsa or something. Not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, and that's essentially what Lance Russell is. So, as the split happens, like I said, my understanding, the time frame was not long. This this kerfluffle over the cash, and George comes to a head, and Jerry says, "I'm gonna take my ball and leave." This is like on a Friday, like we said, they do their TV on Monday. By Monday, Jarrett's got the list of talents you just listed, Seth. He's got Lance Russell and Dave Brown to have not only not only you know come with him but leave Channel 13 because he understands how important they are, and they've gone to Channel 5 because Gula still owns the, the, the time slot on Channel 13 in Memphis, and Lance doesn't show up initially on Jarrett's new TV on Channel 5 because he has to work out his no-compete clause with Channel 13, but it's only like a month later, and he's on his television. So now you've got two, two TV shows. Uh, they're wrestling in the same market, and, and up to this point, the TV show was the highest rated show on Memphis television was the wrestling show. 
and you've got the lead announcer, the background announcer, who have left their jobs at one network, gone to another. You've got the top rising star, Jerry Lawler. So essentially, that, that's, that, that's, that's the landscape you're looking at. In a, in a course of 72 hours, the war's pretty much over, so to speak. I mean, like you said, it drags on, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But you got the top rising star, you got the top announcer, the second best announcer, you got a TV deal, and you got the biggest city in the territory. Sounds and, to me like, like, like Goulas doesn't have much of a chance now, does it? And I can raise that up one more here because, correct me if I'm wrong, but Jerry managed to secure the NWA affiliate. That was that's where I was going with that, you know, yeah. and that okay. was my next step. Yeah. And that wasn't enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but, uh, you can speak to this some too, Dan, being, you know, an old school guy like me. How unheard of it was in that time period. And listen to what Seth just said. Goulas was the known commodity within the NWA. He had been on the board. He had sat in those meetings they had every year to decide who the traveling world champion was going to be. He was around early on when the NWA was first formed and the NWA is not backing him. They're deciding to back Jarrett instead. How, how mind-blowing is that to you, Dan? I mean, come on. I mean, I mean. It's, yeah, it's a rare circumstance that you ever saw that happen. I mean, maybe one or two other times at other places. Um, but, you know, most of that was situations where the, the territories were bought. You know, there was some sort of business agreement in place. Uh, here, Jarrett basically finagled the NWA brand by being more successful they wanted to attach their cart to a winning horse and uh jared was the, the winning horse at the time so that's how that happened yeah that just blows my mind because i know of several different territorial wars uh you know and almost always the nwa board backed whoever the 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 longtime standing nwa promoter was in that territory and that doesn't happen here how important do you think that is to, to, to the victor? I mean, with all the other things I laid out, with Lawler and Lance and the TV station, how important is it that they get the NWA backing as well, do you think, Dan? I think it was very important, especially once Lawler turned babyface, because it gave them uh, that whole deal of him trying to get the belt, and you had the NWA world title. I think beyond that, they had so much else on Goulas that, um, you know, even if they were to run as quote unquote an outlaw, I mean, they're selling out the Mid-South Coliseum. So it's, it's hard for any, uh, action to be taken against them from (laughs) the NWA at the time. You know, I, I think it was just the way it was going to have to be. The NWA was definitely important then, but uh, like we were talking about before the show went on the air, so the fans in the area, they knew the NWA as much as like boxing fans know the WBA. Right. But, you know, when boxing comes on, they don't say, oh, let's watch the WBA. They say, let's watch the boxing match, you know. Right. So the right, fans exactly. there, see, it was just wrestling to the people in Tennessee. But, right. yes, the, the NWA affiliate was important. But the most important, I believe, in building Waller in terms of, of his whole chase to get the title and then the big matches with Harley and the other stuff that he did. Yeah. Yeah, because you're talking the 70s. You're talk- the time frame we're talking in 77, you're talking, you had access, if you were an NWA affiliate, you had access to the Funks and the Briscoe Brothers and Harley Race. And, of course, you could cut deals with Vince and get, get Andre. So this has also given Jarrett a major heads up over Goulas, Uh, you know. And Goulas did still have his TV on five, but I think the ratings fell quite rapidly, my understanding. And he... In your research, Seth, he did try to run Mid-South after the after this split that happened really quickly, didn't he? Y- yes, yes. I believe he was contracted for the Mid-South Coliseum for 
the next few months. Now, the split happened uh-huh. around March. I have right. listings here, courtesy ProWrestlingHistory.com, and I'll have the link up in the show notes at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. Here's the final show Nick Goulas ran in the Mid-South Coliseum. It was on May 9th of 1977. Here's the card. Don Kent and Ed George versus William Stone and Mark Roberts. Tojo Yamamoto versus Dr. X. Pez Watley and Hank James versus John and Rick Davidson. Tennessee tag champs Luke Graham and Ripper Collins versus Don Green and Wayne Petty. And Jackie Fargo versus the Russian Stomper. The Mid-South Coliseum, which holds what, about 10,000 people? Mm, No, it holds, what would you say it holds, Dan? 85? I've always heard 10, but I've never seen an official. Like, what did you say, 85? That's probably more accurate. Okay. Well, I've been in the building. It, I don't think it seats 10,000, but, but close to it. Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's not a small building, that's for sure. That was always the exaggerated number was 10,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this show at, at an 8,500-seat arena drew 484 people. Well, Ooh. no no offense to Jackie Fargo, but Jackie Fargo versus the Russian Stomper, not even... Now, had it been the Mongolian Stomper, and, and mm-hmm. 10 years earlier, now you're talking. But 1977, yeah. when we talked about Jackie realizing that his bump card was getting full... You know, right? And and I'm sure Jarrett ran a, a show around the same time in the same building, didn't he, Seth? Yeah, about two weeks earlier, April 24th, 1977. This is the card that Jerry Jarrett ran. This is the this is the first show Jerry ran. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr., Ricky and Robert Gibson versus uh, Pat McGinnis, Ken Dillinger, and Jim Dalton. Paul Orndorff versus the Gladiator. Ron and Robert Fuller versus the Executioners. Southern Tag Champions Tommy Rich and Bill Dundee versus Porkchop Cash and Norvell Austin. NWA Tag Champions Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan versus David Schultz and Bob Orton Jr. Southern Tag Champions Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry versus, versus Dusty Rhodes and Tommy Gilbert. Southern Champion Jerry Lawler versus Jack Briscoe. And the main event of NWA World Champion Harley Race versus Rocky Johnson. Is it any wonder Nick Goulas was out of business within three years? Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think sh- there's... Yeah. Comparing those two cards, <laughs> come on. And but the, uh, Jerry for that show drew eighty six hundred fans. Right, so he he was capacity exactly. Oh man, so, you know, and and like you said, Goulas limped along for about three more years, and I think I think in the split, either one of you could correct me here. I think he kept the the quote unquote Mid America titles, and Jerry kept the Southern titles for his half of the of the territory. Is that correct? That does sound correct. That, I, to I, I my could be knowledge, wrong. it is yes. Yeah, and that's they, why the because main, the Southern title was the main title right. there once Jared took over. Right, that would be the, the equivalent of like the U.S. title here in the Mid Atlantic Territory or the the North American title down there for for uh, Bill Watts. That that's that major regional titles. What you're talking about would have been the Southern title, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, it's 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 amazing when you think about this and all the little things, and it happened so quick, and it all came down to two basic things creative and cash. Um, I guess an analogy that you can make is let, let's say Hunter gets upset with Vince nowadays and says, I'm going to take half of the WWE and he does it. And all the talent goes with Hunter and only a few of the old timers stay with Vince. And somehow Hunter manages to get all the announcers and get a deal with, Oh, I don't know. Uh, what's another television network similar to USA Turner, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, 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 or Spike same, or something same thing like that. We're talking about here, aren't we? Isn't that about, isn't that a good, about the same kind of comparison yeah. in today's standards? Yeah, if you're going to go on oh, a national level, comparison. yeah. And, and, and let's be honest, I think in today's day and age, I don't think the outcome would be that much different. 
I think fans would go with what's what's the young, hot, upcoming thing, and that's that. But it, it, it's it's a fascinating uh, time period to me. I mean, so many of the fans nowadays know Jerry Lawler as the wisecracking announcer that you know on Vince's television for years, and I don't think they understand because this is even before the Kaufman deal. This is before the you know the famous Andy Kaufman angle with with Lawler. Lawler is a key component in one of the most I don't want to say controversial, but interesting uh, splits of a major territory in the NWA ever. You got anything that you else you can add? We've kind of covered it pretty good, Dan. But I mean, there there anything else you can think of that that we left out or or you find fascinating about this little split? Uh, just I mean, before we wrap it up and all, I, I like you know you you talked about it all being Lawler. Well, once Gulas, you know, we talked about George basically killing the Gulas territory, and they, they tried a few other times after the initial territory closed they tried to like george tried to do his own show uh, i believe it was the uwa out of chattanooga mm-hmm. um and and then you know nick died and and just it never recovered but on the other side like business was hopping and so lawler was introduced and they were lucky that they got that program with fargo out of the way before the split because that's what made lawler once you had lawler made then he, he did his first big program under Jared with Rocky Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Rock's dad, of course, for those that, that don't know. Um, and they did big business there, but that would pale in comparison to the feud later on that year with Bill Dundee, which oh, yeah. would become the thing of Memphis legend. And it's probably still the most talked about feud in Memphis to this day. So really all of that with the split, their business booming, and then one of the first major feuds coming off of that after Rocky Johnson for Lawler was Bill Dundee. And this was a feud where they did things that would just be unheard of today. Bill Dundee uh, would put his Cadillac on the line. And then if he'd lose that, you know, then, uh, well, he'd lost his Cadillac. And then, you know, he'd put his wife's hair on the line and put right. his hair on the line. His <laughs> wife shaved her head. His wife shaved her head for an angle in 1977 in memphis um and you know i know jamie dundee okay i don't i don't know him real well but we've hung out a few times and he's, he's a cool dude um you know he that was his mother uh, she yep. just passed away earlier this year and there was a lot of like a lot of cool memories coming up about her at that time it was just like wow what a ballsy <laughs> chick to yeah, go out mom, there and i mean i'm sure she got paid well yeah <laughs> yeah now, correct oh, wow. me if I'm wrong, uh, Jamie Dundee, he was doing the PG-13 uh, gimmick with yep. under the name Wolfie D, right? Uh, well, Wolfie, Wolfie is uh, his partner, or was partner. his partner oh, in so, PG-13. So he was J.C. Ice, yeah, right? Wolfie is uh, Ice, yes. a, another dude, but he, he's awesome, too. But Wolfie didn't have a wrestling background. He's one of those guys that kind of grew up around the business, where mm-hmm. Jamie, of course, was Bill Dundee's son, but... Um, yeah, I like. I think PG thirteen is greatly overrated. I mean, I think like all of Memphis was great, even in like the lamer years and in the the late eighties. Right. Like, then when PG thirteen hit the scene again, I love the early nineties Memphis. I love it all. <laughs> it's a gold mine. Well, an ongoing thing with me and Dan for our listeners is we've both we've talked before many times about when me growing up in the Carolinas and him growing up in Tennessee, there was always kind of this unspoken feud amongst the boys between Tennessee and the Georgia Carolina territories. And you'd always hear the Georgia Carolina guys go, Oh, did you hear that crazy crap they're doing in, in Memphis and it's Tennessee and it's just, you know, it's, it's a circus, but they drew, they, they absolutely drew and made money. 
And, and, and yeah, we did here too in the Carolinas. It was just different styles, but it didn't make it any less effective with either one of the fan bases. And, and, you know, as I've gotten older and, and as I've gotten, you know, I got out of the business and I've been able to look at things with a different set of eyes. What, what doesn't work for me and what I don't like doesn't mean that it don't, won't work, you know, and it doesn't mean if, as long as you're drawing and making money and you're paying your boys, that's what's most important to me. I, I'm sure you agree with me on that one, don't you, Dan? Oh, yeah. And I mean, let's not forget that the people are throwing babies in the air, you know. They're oh, buying, yeah. The people are buying it. That's all that matters. I do love the old Mid-Atlantic versus Tennessee feud because I've got a lot of friends, you know, over in the Mid-Atlantic like yourself. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to the old Ole gripe of, oh, you're doing that Tennessee BS. And I'm like, yeah. man, I can take my Tennessee BS to any town in the country and we can have them rolling, laughing, crying, uh, you know, ready to kill us, whatever we want them to do. Um, you know? <laughs> I, I've heard that out of Ole's mouth firsthand. One of the first times I met Ole and, and, I, and I brought up something, I asked him a question. Don't talk to me about that Tennessee. Blah, blah, blah. I can't say it here. <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, I hit a button." I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry, sir. But yeah, it's it's you know my only beef, and I've said this before, is and and I don't know it firsthand because I never worked for Jerry. By the time I worked Tennessee, it was I worked a few shots for Bo James, and I worked for Burt Prentice. Different guys, different different era. It, it was you know the guys I talked to that worked for Jerry. He wasn't the best payoff man, you know. And so I've told Seth before, for me as one of being one of the boys, that upsets me because that's my family. But that doesn't affect me as as a fan watching the stuff and enjoying it. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was like uh, it, it was pretty well understood that the money sucked in Memphis unless you're on top. Also, like yeah. that that's the thing. It was very much a feast or famine territory because the guys on top were making good money, but the guys underneath were not. And, and a lot and, of that, uh, place, you know, what, what we said earlier, was such a big territory. I mean, and you, you know, you didn't. This is the days when they didn't pay your travel expenses. So think about that too. You know. No, and then guys on the undercard, of course, you know, are not making a lot of money. And they're seeing these top guys driving around in cat branded Cadillacs every week and buying yeah. houses. I mean, Jimmy Valiant bought a freaking mansion like, within two years of, of his first deal around there yeah. in Memphis. And then left, and, the key, uh, then left the key in Jerry's mailbox and said, I'm off to Charlotte and we came work for the Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> true story. It's a true story. I've heard it from Jimmy himself. <laughs> but you, you could see where it got in the craw of some of the, the mid and lower card guys that oh, yeah. see Jared living in this giant mansion on the hill and not paying the guys squat but you know he's living like a, an a-list hollywood celebrity with his his big mansion in hendersonville but eh, you know he's the guy putting his skin in the game he's the promoter and like i said everybody pretty much knew tennessee was a terrible payoff territory unless you were on top so i guess oh, the hope was to go there and hope you get on top yeah yeah well I, my thing has always been i've told guys this that i've worked with it's like when, when those kind of things happen, yeah, it upsets me a little bit, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, how long have you been in this business? And they'll tell me, and you're you're shocked that a promoter screwed one of the boys? Really? Come on. <laughs> That's a tale as old as time. It's just, it's just, you realize that when you get into this business, that at some point, some promoter's going to screw you. It is what it is. Well, I've seen both sides of it. You know, yeah. I, I've promoted, and I work in the office now, and I, I've been one of the boys also, and, and, you know, traveled on the road as a manager, and, like, so it's like, I get it. I get both sides of it, and the truth is always somewhere in the middle. 
Uh, you know, exactly. the promoters have to protect their interests to make sure they still have a town to run to give you a place to get your crappy payoff next week. Right. And the guys, of course, want to be compensated for their value or their perceived value. So uh, you, you have to find that happy balance. And, uh, and, and, you know, for a guy that had a 30-plus year run as a promoter there, I think Derek did a pretty good job. Yeah. And I'll be the first to say I've said it here on Classic Wrestling Memories, and I've said it on the A1. I'm telling you this as one of the boys, all of us, myself, Dan, anybody else, we think we're better and more over than we really are. It just, it's, we're all alphas. It's part of what it is, you know? It, 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 it's just the reality of the business. Am I lying? <laughs> um, I can't put myself over. Who's going to? How many times have I said that, Seth? How many times have I told you to put yourself <laughs> yeah. over, Seth? Because nobody else is going to do it. <laughs> this first rule of wrestling. Uh, but, but you know, you're right. When you, you look at Jarrett and, and you can say all you want about the payoffs and about this this crazy split, we brought it up. He's the one that made the rise of Jerry Lawler, who was out. I don't think anybody doubts he's a Hall of Famer. Everybody says that. Uh, in any way you want to look at it, as a worker, as an announcer, as a creative guy, uh, he drew money in a major market for a long time. He was able to successfully promote and book shows on not one but two network affiliates in that market. Uh, and when we start listing the name of stars that came out of that territory, under Jarrett, after, up to, during, and after the split, the Rock and Roll Express, Steve Kern, Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton, Jim Cornette, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee. We mentioned PG-13, who gets doesn't get a lot of credit, but they're both great. Uh, you know, uh, Kamala, Kamala Kamala, was a Kamala. Yeah, Kamala, yeah. Well, dude, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, Kamala, one of the I best think, big I think men the ever. I, I think the Steiners worked there for a while in the early 80s. They did. They, they, they started out there. I mean, um, everybody had a run in Memphis at some point, except for a few, a few people I can think of, like the Andersons. I mean, you said already, Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, huge run there. Uh, uh, Rocky Johnson, uh, Junkyard Dog. And the, I not to cut you off, but the, the Memphis Jimmy Valiant and the Carolina Jimmy Valiant. Totally different. Totally different <laughs> workers. Totally, like, not even close to the same. And then like you the, throw in, the Carolina Jimmy Valiant is the Boogie Woogie Man. Everybody knows the fun-loving Boogie Woogie Man. But in Memphis, handsome Jimmy is one of the greatest wrestling acts ever. Oh, and, and then you throw in the you throw in the the Jimmy Valiant that was the manager slash worker for Vince in the seventies. That's another completely different different mm-hmm. take off by the same guy. You know, I, I've 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 told this story before, and it, it it's worth it's a good way to end up the end up. So we talk about Jimmy because was you know one of the biggest stars in Memphis. Yeah, and he was a huge star here in the Carolinas too, and he's a big star in New York. We we were running a small one of the Christmas shows we were talking about here in the Carolinas, and it was a small independent promoter, and they brought Boogie in. No, sorry, it was a summer show. Sorry, I'm getting confused here. Summer show. He brings Jimmy in, and Boogie comes in. And and you've worked shows with Boogie, have you not, Dan? Uh, the only man who's ever kissed me on the mouth is the Boogie Woogie man, Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, it just never, happened in the I ring never, as the ring announcer. And, of course, I had to take the big bump for him and everything and sell it. I and never it, it was, kissed it. you on the mouth. I just made you hug Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I might have given you a hug, but I never even kissed you. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so. I, I'm sure some of these new kids would claim that uh, the Boogie Woogie man like trying to sexually assault him. But, you know, I was familiar with his <laughs> stick, so I just played along. <laughs> so, so we come in, and you know, Boogie gets there and he does his thing. You know, and Boogie's Boogie, you know, just who he is. And there's this guy on the card, big dude, about six, 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 seven, about three hundred pounder, and he has a cowboy gimmick, and he wears these thick red wool socks. 
with his gear because he has the pull-on boots, the ones that don't lace up. You know, like the old cowboy boots like Magnum and 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 Bill Dundee wore ones like that, and Dusty used to wear. You know, and Barry Windham. You know the look I'm talking about, don't you, Dan? They're yeah. they're, they're wrestling boots, but they're like cowboy. Yeah. So he he works in those. Oh yeah. But he wears the thick wool socks, so he's got something to hold on to the boot because they don't lace up. And the the kid he's working that night may have been the size of Slim J. For those of you who don't know who Slim J is, he's now what's his name now? Gladiator. Now he's Gladiator Jeremiah, and he's not quite as small. He's he's bulked up quite a bit. Right, but he was that size back when he first started. Which how big was was Jay when he first started? Five foot, like one hundred and ten pounds, if yeah, that. That's about how big <laughs> this kid is. It's working the cowboy guy, and Boogie's just sitting in the back of the locker room, and the kid comes up and he hits him with the you know what are we gonna do tonight? And just and just will not shut up. And the big cowboy guy. His name was Jake. He looks at him and said, kid, I'm hungover. I'm tired. And I don't want, I don't want, just leave me alone. I'll come find you when I want to talk about our match. Kid won't stop. Then he eventually says the worst thing any green person in the business can hear out of a vet's mouth in the locker room, which is, I'll see you in the ring, kid. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're in for it then. <laughs> right. He's a living snot out of this kid. He knife-edge chops him, but he doesn't use it. He isn't slapping him. He's actually knife-edge chomping him. He beats the piss out of his kid. His finisher is an Alabama jam, big leg drop off the top, which is scary enough because I took it from Jake. I mean, a guy 6'6", 300 pounds, that's scary coming off the top with that leg, you know? He doesn't do it once. He does it twice, and he puts a, puts a chair over his face both times, and he does not protect him either. This kid comes to back, eyes starting to swell up, nose, blood coming out of his nose, and Boogie's just sitting in the back. Boogie's shaking his head, and Boogie goes, brother, brother, brother. Because he made fun, that's what it was, he made fun of his socks. He asked him why he was wearing Christmas socks in the middle of the summer. I forgot that's a key part of the story. That's when he told him, I'll see you in the ring, kid, when he made fun of his socks. So when he comes back all beat up, Boogie's sitting in the corner and he goes, brother, 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 don't ever talk about a brother's socks, brother. That's a big one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a man that has cowboy or that has wrestling boots tattooed on his feet so he can say that he's going to die with his boots on, uh, that's... You know, if, if he says don't talk about the socks, I wouldn't talk about the socks. <laughs> it's the funniest thing I ever saw in a locker room. And, and, he's, and he's just shaking his head the whole time looking at the ground. You know, with that long beard. But anyway, we got a little off topic there. But I thought that was a good good story for, you know, one of the big stars of Memphis. Uh, anything else you wanted to add about Memphis? I mean, you put it over pretty big. Uh, I know they can find a lot of the stuff now on Amazon Prime. Do you know of anywhere else our listeners can find some of this good old Memphis stuff? YouTube, man, the, the collections, like nobody really has a clear ownership stake of the Memphis footage. Mm -hmm. So it's basically public domain, what is out there. So you can find like 79 to like 85 weekly TV on YouTube. It's out there. Just search. Uh, but Amazon Prime is putting a lot of great stuff. High Spots Network has a lot of great Memphis collections up there. Um, you know, check all of that stuff out. Become familiar with it. My final thought on Memphis is despite all of the money that we talked about, all the success, at the end of the day, to me, it was the art. They had, for my money, one of the most unique, creative, exciting pro wrestling TV shows that were ever done, and not one territory was ever able to duplicate what they were able to accomplish uh, just from an artistic perspective. So I think that, above all else is the legacy of Memphis wrestling. I, I, I wholeheartedly echo your sentiments there, Dan. And I would only add to that uh, from a personal standpoint, 
when I got in the wrestling business, I had a bucket list of things I wanted to accomplish. Obviously, uh, most people do in anything they do. One of those things that I did thankfully get to cross off was wrestle in Memphis. That's how much it meant to me as a Carolina boy. So I think that's about all I can say about that. To quote Forrest Gump. Um, Seth, did you want to add anything else? I mean, you're the big J- Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett fan here, and we've kind of talked all over you, but you said you knew we would. So, <laughs> Right. Well, I'm definitely going to check that stuff out on Amazon Prime because I am an Amazon Prime member. And uh, we actually have an affiliate link at a1-wrestling.com slash Amazon. So if, if any of this stuff interests you or you want to sign up to be an Amazon Prime member, if you use our link, a1-wrestling.com slash Amazon, it doesn't cost you anything. It, it, there's no surprises. There's no commitments no surprise, or anything like that. We're not asking you to buy anything in particular. We're just asking you that if you're going to go to Amazon anyway, just use our link and we get a little bit of kickback from it. But uh, I really can't add anything more. I, I've already exhausted my three and a half pages of notes on, <laughs> on me- Memphis here. So, uh, so the- well, Dan, while we got you here, why don't you let our listeners out there know? Of course, we want to thank you once again for coming on and being so knowledgeable about Memphis and Tennessee. Tell these tell these folks about how they can get in touch with you um, for bookings, or you have your own podcast of your own. Uh, why don't you let the listeners know where they can get all that kind of information, Dan? Oh, absolutely. You want me to plug things? I have a laundry list. Uh, so we're going to be here a minute. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so first of all, Midnight Black Mass podcast. It is triple X rated. Uh, so adults only. Myself, the Strong Style Psycho Tank, and Andrew Alexander. Uh, most Monday nights, Eastern Standard Time at 9.30 p.m. on the Beyond Ringside Radio Network at beyondringside.com. You can also subscribe to the Potty Humor YouTube page where the on-demand episodes of the Midnight Black Mass are hosted. Uh, we talk about wrestling mostly, but we talk about anything. It's, it's a free-form discussion between three guys that have known each other for 20 years and love wrestling. So I like it, it when it's y'all talk pretty about interesting. Heavy, I like it when y'all talk about heavy metal music because that's another one of my favorite loves. But anyway, I'm you know cheap plug there for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, we definitely do some of that too. Uh, but you can also follow me on social media at Dragons Rejects on Twitter. I have a Facebook fan page set up at Rev Dan the Dragon Wilson. Head over there and give me a like. Uh, you can also check out Anarchy Wrestling, which I'm involved in now as the head booker and also play-by-play announcer. Um, and it's been a, a labor of love of mine for the past 20 years. That little building in Cornelia, just trying to continue churning out the next generation of stars. And we've done a pretty good job of that over the years. If you count guys like AJ Styles and Xavier Woods and Dash Wilder and Abyss and Gunner, who just got signed to NXT, uh, just trying to, to give a little bit back to the business and keep developing these guys, you know, and still doing that. Uh, you can check out Anarchy Wrestling on Twitter at Anarchy Landmark. Uh, we are also on Powerbomb TV. That's www.powerbomb.tv. Nine ninety nine a month, ten day free trial. You can get Anarchy Wrestling every event, including the big shows that used to be a special ticket, kind of taken from the WWE model there. Um, so you get not only the regular TV shows, but you get all the big shows. Nine ninety nine a month, Powerbomb TV, along with a slew of great wrestling from Canada, Mexico, and all over the United States. So uh, check us out. Thanks so much, guys, for having me. I've had a blast. Brother, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been too long, and, and I'm going to make my way down to Cornelia probably one of these weekends just to get out of this asylum and you know hang out with the boys. So we'll have to catch up face-to-face. Oh, that'd be great if you would. And actually, talking to Cornelia, last plug, and I'm sorry about it, but uh, 
July 22nd is a huge event in Cornelia. We're there second and fourth Saturday of every month for TV tapings. But July 22nd, we're going to be saying farewell to the legendary Strong Style Psycho Tank as the bulldozer Matt Tremont makes his Georgia debut uh, in the building he grew up watching on television at NWA Wildside. It was on his bucket list, so he's coming down for Tank's retirement match in Cornelia. going to be a death match on July 22nd. Uh, cannot miss that. And also, the NWA Wildside reunion will be occurring on September 9th at Cornelia, Georgia, and Mark Arena. So check yeah, that out. I know a little bit about that last one, but I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> With a little bit of luck, I'll be there. <laughs> Are you still going to try to come down for that, Seth? It's a goal. I don't want to make a promise that I'm going to okay. wind up breaking, but but that that is that is one of my goals this year is to make that show because that's... That's one of those times I could probably take the two-day drive each way and you know, kind of smell the roses as I go along and uh, right. catch up with you. And I'm, I'm going to bring my podcast equipment. We can sit down and have a show together. And uh, now, I, I, I don't know for sure, and I don't think you do either, Dan, but last I heard there's supposed to be, what, 30, 40 former Wild Side stars at that show? 40 confirmed so far, and I'm intentionally being kept on the dark on a lot of it because of my... Uh, heavy involvement book in the Anarchy TV. I'm just trying not to cross like my creative streams. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm more of a booking consultant on the Wild Side Show and not booking the thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But so I'm, I'm kind of purposely being kept in the dark, but I've been told we have 40 confirmed former stars at least. I don't want to speak out of turn for the booking committee, Seth, but I guarantee you there's going to be a handful of former guests that you have never met, but you have interviewed that will probably be there. I'm just saying. And I, and I get a, I get a strange premonition that two of the people you're talking to right now might be on that show as well I i'm just saying what do you think man <laughs> is that a possibility maybe oh no i i can confirm at least myself and myself and steven prezak will be reuniting <laughs> the wild side announce team Excellent. for that event and, and 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 i've said it before and i'll say it again the greatest announce ever announcing job ever by dan the dragon wilson i have to find it so we can play it one time terry knight's ass is on fire that was classic now that i know but there's not now that there was no permanent damage to brother that was that was an interesting night <laughs> we'll leave it at that boy oh. wasn't it oh wow we can we can sit here and talk to the our listeners could just sit here and talk to us talk about old times forever but anyway fans we, we we really appreciate you tuning in this week to classic wrestling memories talking a little bit about memphis once again to dan the dragon wilson we are so thankful you came on and gave us our expertise seth why don't you let everybody know how they can get a reach with us and, and we'll see them on down the road after that Absolutely. Uh, the website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. There's Facebook comments on that page. Uh, the Twitter is at A1W Podcast, and the Facebook is at A1 Wrestling. I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com for email. Ask, ask me anything. And Train, if they want to get a hold of you, it's CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter, correct? That is correct. All right, well, that is going to bring us to the end of our sixth episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. Thank you, folks, so much for listening. We are on Apple Podcasts. Uh, drop us a line there. Uh, give us a review. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know if, there, if there's something we can improve. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show. And we are also on Stitcher. And uh, ch chances are we're going to be on the podcast player of your choice if you just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories. I've done the search myself. Uh, it, it comes up in every search engine I've tried. So once again, thank you folks so much for listening. We're going to be back next time. We're going to be resuming our 101 series, 
and we're going to be talking Booking 101. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll talk to you folks next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Brother, 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 you're listening to the Classic Wrestling Radio Network. Brother, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's good. That's right, Daddy. That's right, Daddy. The Boogie Woogie Man. The Boogie Woogie Man is here, baby. All right. All right. (laughs) Did you just have a heart attack, Seth? (laughs) 